Inside Outside Innovation is the podcast that brings you the best and the brightest in the world of startups and innovation. I'm your host, Brian Ardinger, founder of InsideOutside.io, a provider of research, events, and consulting services that help innovators and entrepreneurs build better products, launch new ideas, and compete in a world of change and disruption. Each week, we'll give you a front row seat to the latest thinking, tools, tactics, and trends in collaborative innovation. Let's get started. Welcome to another episode of Inside Outside Innovation. I'm your host, Brian Ardinger, and as always, we have another amazing guest with me today. You have heard him here before, probably a couple of years ago. He's one of our first guests on Inside Outside Innovation, Neil Sony. Neil, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me back, Brian. Hey, Neil, thank you for coming back on. Last time you were on the show, you were with Estee Lauder and yep. doing a lot of the corporate innovation work in and around that space. Two years ago, that's a long time in this world of innovation. So since then, you've done a lot. And one of the reasons I wanted to bring you back on the show was you have a brand new book out called The Startup Goldmine, How to Tap the Hidden Innovation Agendas at Large Companies to Fund and Grow Your Business. So I'm very excited to have you on the show to talk about your new book. Thanks for having me back. And yeah, I think you're right. A lot happens in two years. I don't even think the book was in the works yet. So <laughs> no. a lot happens. Yeah, you were one of the first guests to come out here for the Inside Outside Innovation Summit a couple of years ago. And I've always enjoyed following your work, both inside innovation corporations and such. And then now, as you're also an entrepreneur yourself, so we can talk and get into that a little bit. But let's start the conversation with your new book out, Startup Goldmine. Let's talk about how you got involved in writing this book and what kind of led you to this topic. So I spent the first few years of my career purely on the startup side. First founded a very small company, then I was leading growth somewhere else, but I was kind of always on the... Like if you think about marketing versus product, I was definitely more on the marketing side, although I've dabbled on the product side as well. And in a lot of that work, and a lot of the companies I've been with, we were trying to sell into large organizations. So whether that was higher education, so colleges, large companies, I've been on the sales side and trying to sell into these companies. But since I'd never sat on the inside of one of the large companies, I didn't really know what was going on on the other side. You know, I had my tactics that had been working for me. I had mentors, advisors, different people who shared different things, but I've never had that personal experience. And so a few years later, I guess, I ended up getting that pretty cool gig at, at Estee Lauder where I was helping to create the external innovation department, which is pretty cool because they didn't have that when I came in. And so we were really tasked with first defining what this group is, what are the goals and how do we go do that and then executing. And I was in that role for almost three years. And so I learned a lot about why large companies operate the way they do. So a lot of the things that are frustrating for entrepreneurs and salespeople, why do they move so slow? Why are timelines how they are? Why does it take months to organize a simple conference call, right? Like right, absolutely. a lot of these issues that every founder has wondered about, I was kind of getting an inside look at that. And so, you know, I knew Estee Lauder was not going to be my career and they knew that as well. It was kind of well-defined few years that I was going to spend there. And then go on and do something else, whether it was my own company or work with another founder and then go back onto the startup side. That was kind of always in the plans. So I was taking notes for myself, just what I was learning while I was at Estee. And over the course of time, I started getting asked questions by founders of maybe, do you have any insight on why this deal went sour or, or are these deal terms fair that they're asking for? Just different types of things. And I was sharing them with people pretty openly. And so I started giving my notes to a few people and wrote a couple blog posts and just kind of increasingly, I kept hearing from many different people that, you know, they wish there was a resource that right. they could turn to about these types of deals. And yeah, that's kind of what I 
set out to go create is kind of the book that I wish that I had when I was first getting into like the startup sales side. So let's dig into that a little bit. So obviously the startup and corporates, they really do kind of live in two different worlds, although there's quite a bit of overlap when you get into it. So let's talk a little bit from the startup side. What are some of the core pitfalls that you saw as an entrepreneur or working with entrepreneurs that most startups made when trying to interact with corporations? I think one is like just a general feeling of anxiety. It's probably the biggest one. Mm -hmm. You know, I think Brian, you know this and probably a lot of your listeners do from listening to other episodes. There's kind of like almost a different time scale that the two groups are operating at. So I would say startups are operating on the time frame of they're looking at their metrics every day, maybe even every hour, right? Or even potentially in real time, they are making major decisions in a matter of weeks, they test something, it'll say, hey, let's run that test for a week and see how it goes, right? This is kind of the time scale that they're living at. Corporates, on the other hand, are looking at quarters, years, right? Or five years even sometimes. They're looking at much, much longer timeframes. And so when you have these two groups, I've noticed on the founder side, someone will send an email and not get a response within 48 hours, right? And think that they've lost the deal. That's probably the most common is that. And then the biggest mistake that someone can go make kind of a very fine line between pressuring and being persistent. And no matter how much we all think that humans are logical and rational creatures, we all do naturally want to do business with people that we like. Right. And a great way to not seem liked, right, is if you're pressuring your corporate counterpart to respond when they really haven't, you know, they really haven't left you out to dry or anything. They just haven't responded right away. So there's kind of a fine line between following up and being annoying. That's probably the biggest pitfall is I would say, I've definitely made this mistake hundreds of times myself now sitting on the other side. Right. Right? I know that back in my early days, right, I was for sure following up way too quickly. And I'm sure I drove people away by doing that because, you know, it just shows like a lack of empathy, right? And it might not be on purpose. A lot of it from the inside perspective, if you are that insider trying to navigate the large corporate entity, a lot of times an individual within that corporation can't control all the strings or yeah, unlike a founder. And so a lot of it is literally trying to figure out, okay, who do I, in the organization, do I need to include in this or bring to the table? And that takes coordination, time, effort, et cetera. And, and it's not going to be transparent to you. Exactly. They're, they're not going to show you those internal emails. Exactly. And just a second point is that kind of like the second pitfall is that as a founder, you know, your deal that you're doing with a large company, that might be your biggest deal that you're going to do in the entire life cycle of that company. So obviously it gets your utmost attention on the corporate side, they may have a pipeline of a hundred of these deals right. that they're looking at at any given time, right? So in terms of relative importance, it's not that you're not a, an important deal for them. It's not that you can't help their business. It's just that on the startup side, this deal potentially makes or breaks the company. And on the corporate side, it doesn't make or break the company. I mean, right. it's as simple as that. So there's definitely that kind of misconceptions where if you're operating on the belief that they're going to operate the same way that you are and with the same urgency and the same incentives, it's just not going to happen. Right. And the incentives is an interesting concept to talk about because, you know, from the inside corporate walls, you know, a lot of times those decisions aren't necessarily 100% rational or economic even driven. They're a lot of times driven by, you've heard the saying, you know, you're never fired by buying IBM, you know, that kind yep. of old mantra of going with a tried and true and thing that you know, rather than something that's inherently more risky because it is a startup and such. Talk about some of the incentive structures that you saw that either worked or didn't work to make the transition from startup to corporate partnerships work. To start off, I think on the corporate side, a lot of it comes down to your management team and how comfortable they are with truly innovating. Obviously, 
seems like every possible company has an innovation group now, right? Um, it seems like that's, that's almost like status exactly. quo now. Yeah, but innovation can be just a buzzword or it could be the real thing, right? So I'm not saying that every company that has an innovation group is just doing it as a buzzword. Probably a lot of them are not, right? And what it kind of comes down to is if you're not just paying lip service to it, if you're actually doing it, I've noticed that those companies have a much higher tolerance for deals not being successful. It's a little bit counterintuitive, but they're a little bit more open to like a swing and a miss and then also potentially hitting a home run as opposed to just hitting singles or hitting bunts or something, right? Right. And I just noticed that a lot of times, I would say Estee Lauder, that came down to the management team. Like for external innovation, we were very, very lucky that, especially the person we reported to, this guy, Carl Haney, he's still there. Very good, very good guy. He had a very high tolerance for failed projects. He was looking at our pipeline through a portfolio approach. He doesn't have a VC background, but he might as well have. You know, our meetings are kind of like review meetings and kind of when we were being evaluated on our performance, it was an examination of the whole pipeline and not from a standpoint of like, oh, you had nine successes and, but why did this one fail? It would be much less about that. So I think a lot of it comes down to the management team because we could not have operated the way we did without having somebody like that who had our backs. Because I think if it was the opposite, right? If we were punished for every failure, we would have operated a lot more conservatively. Like, so things that we were able to push through or even consider because we had that kind of air cover, we would always call it air cover we were a little bit more ambitious with the kinds of companies and startups that we brought in. And if you have the opposite incentives, it's very, very difficult because then you can't miss, right? You have to be 100% successful, which means you're kind of forced to do incremental stuff, right? It'd be very hard to do something kind of out of left field without having that kind of air cover. So that's probably number one. And then the second thing that I've noticed, so let's ignore, you know, monetary incentives for a second, gone kind of like an ownership perspective. I've noticed not just at Estee Lauder, but in speaking with others, companies that allow their employees to do more entrepreneurship. So I would say mm-hmm. if somebody has a concept, have some type of mechanism to allow employees to run with that within the company, uh, you'll often find like there's stars who are just hidden within the organization. And when they have their own permission to run on a project that they're passionate about, they almost become a completely different person, right? I mean, mm-hmm. in their day-to-day job, they might be call it like a C player or maybe a B minus player, then you, you know, you put them on something they're passionate about and this person becomes an A plus or, you know, an A and, and you didn't even know you had that person internally. Right. right. And that's not even monetary. It's just letting people having some mechanism for that. I mean, I did a very brief, you know, just a few month internship at Booz Allen, the consulting firm, and they had something like that, at least in their healthcare division, they had something like that where employees could come up with a concept and then pitch this board, right, that they had put together among senior leadership. If you made it through that stage, you got, I think it was a $10,000 budget to create a prototype or a pilot to get some data. And then, you know, a very simple model, right? And then at the end, the people who were like the semifinalists who got that 10000 they all pitch. And then whoever wins gets to work on that project for a year as paid. Pretty cool concept, right? Because you're like, hey, I'm kind of getting to invent my job, like if I win. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying that's the only model to do it, right? But that's a pretty cool incentive where you're not even paying people. You're not saying, oh, you get like equity in the spin out company that we're going to do. I think those things are very helpful. And, you know, I do advocate for companies to at least consider those kinds of things. But I understand legally there might be issues or, you know, there might be issues with comfort of kind of then maybe people will only want to work on those kinds. I get that, right? There's issues around allowing everybody to go create their own spin out company, right? I get it. It doesn't mean you can't do kind of these internal like competition-based things or hackathon-type things, which might 
surface really cool ideas and disruptive things that you didn't even know were hiding within your existing organization. So it doesn't have to come from outside. So how important do you think it is to expose your internal corporate team folks to startups, both from a tactical or task perspective, as well as just understanding the landscape of what's going on outside the traditional walls of the corporation? Yeah, I think it's really important. And I'm sure you know your listeners probably understand this and you definitely understand this, Brian. <laughs> Inside of large companies, especially you know companies that are like 10,000 plus employees, it's an echo chamber. Regardless of what company, I mean, every company has an echo chamber internally and you know, your world doesn't go beyond your company plus your immediate competitors. But I would say, you know, if you look at how the corporate landscape has changed over, maybe it's not even that new anymore, so maybe over the last 20 years, a lot of the competition really comes out of nowhere, right? I mean, if Marriott yeah. was just looking at Hilton, right, and Hyatt, and they're just kind of looking at, at each other, none of them would have seen Airbnb coming. So it's just like a lot of these things don't come from your direct competitors. It kind of forces you to have to look outside of that, right? You can't just look at just your immediate competition. And that's part of the echo chamber. I mean, going back to Estee for a second, like that was a role of external innovation that we going into it didn't call out. We did not necessarily explicitly realize, oh, we're going to be the conduit through which things that are kind of on the fringe are going to make their way and filter throughout this organization. Because we didn't realize there was no other mechanism for that. I mean, people mm-hmm. go to industry conferences and industry events, and they just kind of stay within the industry. And it's just like, there's a lot of value to that. Because even if you don't end up working with the startup that you're exposed to, it does show a new way of thinking. And I can give a very clear-cut example of that. So early on when I was at Estee, we looked at a company that was taking a microbiome approach to skincare, which was, this was like 2015. So now I understand like microbiome is pretty popular now, right? Sitting in 2019, like we hear about it a lot. But 2015, it was kind of on the fringe, like not too many people had been talking about it. It's a bit of academia, but there was this very small company out of San Francisco that was working on it. Very cool company. We did not end up working with them for a couple of different reasons. I mean, you know, they didn't have IP on some of the things that they were working on. It wasn't as developed as maybe they were saying on the website. So there were, you know, there were some things that like, it was a little bit of vaporware. But I would still say that by circulating that company throughout ELC, it changed the way that people were thinking about microbiome. Because I think at the time, it was thought of as a purely academic kind of application. Like mm, nobody, thought it, yeah, nobody yeah. thought it could be applied to a commercial product. But I think by seeing a company at least trying to do it, it made it seem more possible, right? It's just one of those things where, yeah, I mean, maybe they would have thought about it eventually, but it would have happened in 2019, probably when it's in the news, right? As opposed right. to in 2015. So it's the difference between getting out a product and maybe releasing it in 2019 versus releasing it in 2025 or something, right? Well, uh, and that brings up an interesting point too, from the standpoint of, you know, a lot of times I think like in corporate venture, again, you're in your own ecosystem, you're, you're looking at deals that every other competitor in the corporate venture space is looking at. So looking outside those walls, sometimes you can find those hidden gems, especially for like cross technology types of solutions. We've seen that in our conference when we bring startups and corporates together. Some startups that are on the showcase floor, maybe in a particular vertical to start with, but having a different corporate entity come and say, hey, have you thought about your solution in our particular vertical? And it's kind of changed the dynamic for both the startup and the corporation because it gives them a different insight into how that technology can be used in a different domain that they hadn't thought of or something along those lines. Well, that's great for a startup too, right? Because now when you're going to investors or just as a standalone business, your market is potentially now two markets, right? So yeah, it's very useful for the startup as well. 
So what else about the book? Are there some tricks or tips or things that people should go out and grab the book to learn about? Yeah, I would say, well, the biggest thing is if you've not sat, or even if you have sat within the large company, but you're on the startup side now, I would say the biggest thing for somebody like that is to really understand what's going on behind the scenes at a company. So, you know, the book is broken into three different parts, but the first part is really around helping you understand, like, what is your corporate counterpart doing and why are they doing it that way? You know, I think one thing I tried to make clear throughout the book, hopefully I did a good job of that, Brian, but I tried to make clear that, you know, a lot of times this frustration with people on the corporate side that, oh, you know, they're just being dumb or they're just being slow or yeah, that they're just like not as intelligent as you on the startup side. I tried to bust that myth where it's not true at all. They're just responding to a completely different set of incentives than you are. And so that's really what I make abundantly clear and try to also show what they are motivated by. You know, if we want to give like a quick tip or trick, it's really uh, useful to look at or try to figure out what is your counterpart rewarded for and what are they punished for? So I'll give you like an example with myself is like I was mentioning earlier with the senior management that we had at Este, you know, we had a lot of air cover to swing and miss. But what I was really looking for was like, you know, we were almost thinking of our group as like the, even though it wasn't necessarily venturing, we were thinking about it in a similar terms to a VC where we were really going to be rewarded for the home run. We weren't necessarily looking for the singles or the doubles even. I mean, there were other people within the organization who kind of had a handle on that. We were brought in to kind of really bring something out of left field and bring something that just hadn't been done in the industry before. That's what we were rewarded for. So if somebody was trying to figure out, okay, how do I make Neil do what I want? It's how do I help him hit that home run? And so that's what we were really looking for. You know, there's other organizations where if you look at it, the person is really just trying to bring something solid And it also depends where they are in their journey throughout that company. If somebody spent a decade plus or something and and has a really solid foundation within a company, they're going to act very differently than if they just joined a company two months ago. There's just a different mindset that they're going to have. So I would say a big part, you know, if you're coming at the book from the startup side, big part of it's just, I really try to help you understand what's going on on the other side. Because for me, that was unknown until I joined the corporate side. Brian, one thing that's been surprising to me has been the feedback on the other side, right? So even though the book is not necessarily addressed to those in in the corporate world already, or people who are on maybe on the innovation side, I've been getting a lot of really interesting feedback from that group, simply because I think the way I write the book, and maybe, you know, you can comment on this a little bit, you know, as the author, it's hard to, (laughs) it's hard to almost see it like in an unbiased light. I kind of do shed light on the founder mindset as well, or, or, you know, the startup mindset as well if you're on the corporate side reading the book. So even though it's not addressed to those on the corporate side, it does show, okay, here's what your, if you're on the corporate side, here's what your startup counterparts are, how they're thinking about these deals and maybe why they're acting the way that they're acting. Yeah. Right? And I think that, and, yeah. I think that's incredibly important to understand. And, and I think a lot of times if you've been in a corporate environment your entire life and you're incentivized differently and you're working on optimizing a business model that's, you know, tried and true in that, you know, it does look, sometimes like the outside is kind of insane and in how they do things and vice versa. But being able to explain or give examples of how the different sides think and are different, but yet are similar is a powerful thing to display. Yeah. And I think that that's a lot of what I tried to get across. And, you know, going back to how the book is organized, there's three parts. So the first part is really pulling back the curtain. Second part mm-hmm. is more tactical. How do you close a deal? And then the third part is really around this idea of bringing the two sides together. And I know that's where I interviewed you for the book a bit and definitely mentioned, you know, your event, your Inside Outside Summit, because I do think that things like that are just going to kind of reduce the language barrier. 
Because that's really what I keep coming back to is I think that's what it is. It's both sides really stand to benefit from each other. They just often speak past one another. So Neil, as always, I love having you on the show and talking more about this particular topic because it's near and dear to my heart as well. I wanted to let the audience know if they want to connect with you and your book, what's the best way to do that? Best way to you know see what I'm writing, get in touch with me, probably just be through my website. So it's very easy, neilsony.com, N-E-I-L-S-O-N-I.com. The book is available all sorts of places, Amazon, obviously, and then pretty much you know most places you buy books, it's there. If you're a company and you're looking at getting multiple copies, I would suggest just reach out to me on my website. So neilsony.com slash contact. So, <laughs> Sounds great. Yeah. So just, uh, you know, cause I've had a couple of companies do that. So if, if that's what you're interested in, just feel free to reach out to me there. And then probably Twitter is another really good way. My handle is the real Neil S. That's a good place to get in contact with me as well. Definitely check out the book. Would love to hear people's thoughts. No matter if you're on the startup side or on the corporate side or uh, somewhere else in this kind of pretty cool ecosystem that's popping up now. Sounds good. We'll pick up a copy of the Startup Goldmine. And Neil, I look forward to talking to you again. Thank you for being on Inside Outside Innovation. Yeah, thanks, Brian. That's it for another episode of Inside Outside Innovation. If you want to learn more about our team, our content, our services, check out insideoutside.io or follow us on Twitter at the IO Podcast or at Artinger. Until next time, go out and innovate.